Hi, I'm Melissa Roach with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today's episode features SFU's Associate Vice President of External Relations, Shobana Jayamadavan. Our host, Am Johal, speaks with Shobna about her experience immigrating from Malaysia 25 years ago and how she found community and work that's meaningful to her here in BC. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Below the Radar, uh, everyone. We're very excited to have Shobna uh, with us uh, this afternoon for a, for a conversation. Uh, welcome, Shobna. Good afternoon, Am. Yeah, wondering if we can maybe uh, begin uh, by you introducing yourself a little bit. Uh, sure, yeah. So I was born in Malaysia, and when I was five years old, I uh, went to India to pursue my education and went to a convent boarding school and completed my master's in social work in India and moved back to Malaysia for a couple of years. And then from there, I immigrated to Canada. And I've had uh, 25 years now in this beautiful country. Mm-hmm. So, so cr- you're currently now the Associate Vice President of External Relations at SFU. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you do uh, with SFU now. So, I joined uh, Simon Fraser University in 2017, and uh, I was hired as AVP of External Relations. So my portfolio is mainly an external facing role uh, with a focus on government relations, community relations. And in the last uh, two and a half years, I've had the great honor of uh, co-facilitating some of the reconciliation initiatives at uh, SFU. Now, um, it's quite a journey uh, going from uh, India and Malaysia to Canada uh, 25 years ago. Wondering if you can talk little bit about your uh, arrival uh, to Canada and what that that looked like for you yes it's been uh, it's been quite the journey so I arrived in Canada uh, in the summer of 1995 uh, and just to sort of uh, play a bit of a rewind over there I went back to Malaysia after I finished my master's uh, with the full intention of settling there uh, because I had a Malaysian uh, citizenship and, uh, you know, working in different parts of Malaysia. But when I got there, uh, I was really, really disheartened to experience a very different kind of Malaysia than what I had in mind, in the sense that not having grown up there, not speaking the Malay language became a huge barrier for me in terms of educational and uh, career opportunities. But also uh, in the 90s, what I experienced was uh, a very, very classist sort of a society with uh, the different ethnic groups uh, being a bit siloed in the community. And I just didn't feel uh, a sense of belonging. And I couldn't see myself uh, living there for the rest of my life. Uh, So at that time, uh, my brother, who was um, already here in Canada, uh, encouraged me to apply for uh, permanent residency um, and told me that there were uh, great opportunities for social workers in Canada. 
So I uh, arrived in Canada in the June of uh, 1995. I was in my late 20s. Uh, I was uh, married then. And uh, it was just such an adventure, Anne, you know, mm-hmm. getting off the plane in Vancouver. I remember just standing there for a second, pausing, uh, looking at the sunny blue skies and just feeling absolutely delighted <laughs> to land in Vancouver. And I was just so looking forward to what was to follow. Now, in terms of um, leaving the kind of uh, political disruptions and turmoil that was going on in Malaysia at that time uh, in the mid-90s and arriving in Vancouver with fresh eyes to uh, this city, this country, in a number of ways. Uh, How did you perceive it? What did that arrival look like? Or what does the sort of observations of the outsider coming in uh, look like? So what's so interesting about uh, the the 90s, at least for me personally, is um, I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, I didn't have access to internet. Didn't have a laptop of my own. You know, those were the days when you picked up the traditional phones and you called folks or you wrote letters. And so because there wasn't this huge influence and impact of social media and uh, all the different channels we have now, I landed in Canada absolutely with an open slate, I would say. All I knew was I was coming to a beautiful city and that my brother uh, who uh, encouraged me to apply to come here, uh, had had a very positive experience. And the little that I'd read about Canada when I applied for permanent residency had to do more with the governance of the country, the multiculturalism, uh, the great uh, tourist destinations. So I sort of landed here with a very, very positive um, outlook on what my future is going to be. But my first impressions landing at the YBR airport was so positive. I remember the immigration officer who was processing my papers, you know, super friendly and asked me a whole bunch of questions and and then commented, oh, you actually speak good English. And over the years, that comment has been made a few times. And I remember the first time I heard it. I asked myself, now, why wouldn't I speak good English? <laughs> Not realizing there was a, you know, there was some context to that question. But my first experiences were so positive. Folks were friendly. I had absolutely no uh, negative experiences, uh, you know, landing in the country to begin with. So for me, overall, even when I look at the last 25 years, it has been such a positive journey. Uh, not that it didn't have its you know, huge share of struggles and unpleasant moments. But overall, for me, it has been what I thought it would be, a fantastic adventure. Now, uh, one of your first jobs when you uh, arrived here, you had mentioned to me uh, once was at GM Place. Can you uh, share a little bit about that time? (laughs) Yes, GM Place. Every time I, you know, I pass uh, what is now called Rogers Arena, but previously GM Place. Every time I'm on the SkyTrain and I pass it, I sort of, you know, get uh, pushed into memory lane. Um, So when I came to Canada in the June of 1995, I came believing uh, that I would have absolutely no problems getting a job as a counselor or a social worker or a community 
you know, development officer or something on those lines. And much to my surprise, um, I did not get even a phone call when I started to apply for jobs. And the first month or two, I was focused on uh, jobs that required degrees in social work or psychology. And I did not get a single response. It very quickly dawned on me that there is a problem. So I went to an immigrant and refugee settlement agency uh, in Coquitlam. I was staying in Coquitlam at the time. And I asked them if they could help me. So they updated my resume, uh, made it uh, a bit more Canadian in terms of its style, and then encouraged me to apply for all kinds of jobs, including minimum wage jobs. So I realized that because I am different, I look different, I talk different, and my education is from another country, chances are I will not be able to pursue a social work career anytime soon. So I started to apply for minimum wage jobs. And the only response I got was from GM Place. So I went for the interview and there was a man and a woman who interviewed me and they said that I was overqualified for the job and it may be better for me to explore other job opportunities. And I was devastated because I perceived it as, at that point in time, as I was not even good enough for a minimum wage job in Canada. And it broke my heart. It really, really uh, hurt my self-esteem and my sense of self-worth. In that moment, out of sheer desperation, I looked at the woman, looked into her eyes, and I said, I desperately need a job, and I am willing to do any job here at GM Place. And the next thing I know, they offered me the job of an usher, and they said that my wage would be $7.50 an hour, and the shifts generally tend to go between five and midnight uh, when the Canucks and the Grizzlies, the basketball team, played uh, at GM Place. So that's how I started my career uh, in Canada. Now, did you uh, become a Canucks and a Grizzlies fan during that period? <laughs> so I eventually became a Canucks <laughs> and Grizzlies fan, but it was easier for me to immediately become a Grizzlies fan because I knew a lot about basketball and I loved basketball. But I'll tell you the truth, I had never uh, read or seen anything to do with ice hockey. And being the first year in Canada, I struggled with the cold weather and I could not understand why people would play on ice and it was so cold in there. So it took me a while to fall in love with the Canucks, but now I'm a Canucks fan too. Yeah, those were tumultuous years for the Canucks at that uh, time period after their Stanley Cup run and the, <laughs> the Grizzlies was, uh, I, I miss the Grizzlies, they were so good. Um, uh, so in terms of uh, when you started out uh, your career and working in social work in those early days following your time at, at GM Place, um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that period in terms of uh, uh, doing social work in, in BC? Absolutely. So when I was working at GM Place, I got a job, a second job at Coast uh, Foundation, uh, which is a organization, an organization in Vancouver um, that provides very, very valuable services to adults with severe mental illness. 
So I was their employment counselor. So generally my day would start around nine and I would work at Coast Foundation till about five. And then I would hop on a bus, go over to GM Place, get changed into my uniform and then work from about 6.30 to, you know, about midnight and then come back home. So that's what I did the first couple of months. And because I had heard so much about how difficult it is to get a job and the few immigrant folks that I met uh, said that it would be next to impossible for me to become a social worker in this country. So I kept both jobs. And then one day I saw an ad uh, in the Vancouver Sun and the ad said that the BC Ministry for Children and Families needed 300 social workers. So I wrote an entrance exam, uh, which required a 70% pass. And after that, I got a call to be interviewed. Now, those days, because of lack to a lack of access to internet and other things, it was very difficult to prepare for these interviews and even to get a sense of what the focus of the interviews would be. So during the interview, what happened was that, because this was for the position uh, titled Child Protection Social Worker, all the questions that I was asked had to do with BC child welfare and the specific legislation and policies. And to tell you the truth, Anne, I was clueless what these questions really meant. So I did my best to interpret it and give examples about the different things I did in India and in Malaysia uh, in the field of social work. And I got a sense that I was just not giving them the right answers. The last question, thankfully, was a role play. And I was asked to play the role of a social worker who was going into the home of a mother who was struggling with poverty, addictions issues, and who was very upset to see a child protection social worker at the door. So the role play instruction was that I need to engage with her effectively, and then I need to try and convince her to take help and deal with the issues so that her children would be okay to continue to live with her and I could close my neglect abuse investigation. To cut a very long story short, later I found out that I actually did not do well in the interview. I did not pass the interview, but I scored very high marks for the role play and the panel was convinced that I had what it takes to be a social worker. So they decided to hire me and put me on six months probation. And that decision that that panel made uh, and the choice they made to go beyond my answers changed my life and the life of my two children uh, more than anything else in Canada. Now, you worked in uh, a variety of, of settings, including in Haida Gwaii. And when I've spoken with you before, you've talked about um, how you were welcomed uh, into the community in terms of uh, the forms of inclusion that people have. And this is always a challenging thing in a, in a Canadian context. But wondering if you can talk a little bit about that uh, time of your life when you lived and worked in Haida Gwaii. 
Yeah, so working and living in Haida Gwaii, I would say, is one of the highlights of uh, my life in Canada. Haida Gwaii is magical. The place is beautiful. The people are so warm and welcoming and kind and generous. It's just one of those little paradises, I think, on the planet. So what took me to Haida Gwaii is actually quite interesting. So as a child protection social worker, you struggle with this authority and this delegation you have from the minister uh, that gives you the power to investigate families when there's allegations of child abuse and neglect. And it's one of those situations where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Very quickly, within the first uh, three, four years uh, in my frontline experience, I started to realize that there is an issue when it comes to indigenous children and communities. Uh, though the indigenous population was very small in BC in the 90s, the number of children in government care and in foster care was horrendously high. It was more than 50%. And there were huge challenges uh, in working within Indigenous communities, but the challenge was more on the part of the child welfare system, which applied a very Eurocentric, a very Western way of looking at child welfare, children's best interest, uh, and all of those things. So I started to struggle with this issue, and I told my first supervisor, who was my mentor and a dear friend, I told her, I don't think I can continue working as a social worker. It just doesn't feel good, and I'm afraid I am going to end up hurting a child by removing them from their family when I shouldn't. And I think I should leave the ministry. And this wonderful woman, Ruth, told me that it's very important for people like me who are self-reflective and who worry about the ethics and the jurisdictions of child welfare to remain in child welfare and help change the system. So during this time, I was asked to support the Stolo Nation to set up the first child welfare intake office in Chilliwack. And during that time, I visited one of the closed residential schools there, met with elders and engaged with community members. And they were very, very open, honest and blunt with me. And at that point, I had a conversation with one of the uh, child welfare staff there. And I said, I think I'm part of the problem and I'm thinking of leaving. And she responded and said, well, that's what most people do, run away from the problem. Why don't you go work in an indigenous community and help fix the problems? She said it with such sincerity and passion. I decided to follow through with that advice. And when a team leader position opened up in Haida Gwaii, I moved to Haida Gwaii. And one of the first things that struck me when I got off the little ferry uh, near Skidiget, I felt that I was at home. There was something about that place that made me feel I didn't need to make an extra effort to blend in, to try and be like somebody else. I could just be Shobna. And the two years that I was there, that was the experience. 
I felt that the Haida people, the families, the Haida leaders that I met, I felt I didn't need to explain things more than once. They just got me. And it was just a deep connection and a bond I felt with people uh, in Haida Gwaii. And we did some great work together. And I was very, very sad to, to leave that community. But on the uh, point that you uh, asked me to touch on, Am, the issue of inclusion, I think what is very, very special, I think, about indigenous cultures is that they've had the experience of being excluded. They still are excluded from decision-making, from community uh, initiatives, uh, from participating fully uh, in building the economy of a country. So many places where they continue to be excluded. So I think when someone has experienced exclusion, it becomes, I think, not just easier, but you're compelled to practice inclusion. And I think that's what happened for me in Haidegwai. Yeah, you know, Shobna, in the um, development of immigration patterns, and certainly there's historical ones that go back uh, a century and further right to the beginnings of colonialism, but in the uh, post-Second World War period, and certainly in the opening up of immigration 60s and 70s, the uh, as uh, progressive uh, a policy as the government uh, tried to make it, but was very much around welcoming people in, and uh, but giving them a kind of place. And if you left that place that was designated for you as your place of inclusion, um, there was all sorts of forces that uh, snapped back in many ways. And I think about the context of my parents immigrating in the 60s and early 70s, a very different time, that the point system that we have today that adjudicate, adjudicates immigration, they wouldn't be allowed in under today's model than from the time uh, that they got in. So there's been a lot of changes. Or you see a context where we have all sorts of progressive policies or in uh, Quebec where there are um, uh, policies in place around uh, wearing uh, 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 religious symbols, uh, for example. And so you do see these kind of forms in different parts of the country that, that, that play out. And you're someone who has uh, friends from many countries, and there's historical layers to uh, immigrant uh, communities. Uh, people who came in, in the 40s and 50s have a vastly different experience than those who might have immigrated in the 90s or more um, recently. And so by uh, its very nature, particularly in urban contexts where the majority of immigration to Canada goes into the cities of Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Um, uh, how do we think through this difference? And how do you think about your own friendships in terms of uh, communities that you uh, are uh, involved with in your own? How do we think about friendship and community and how to be together through all of this difference? Oh, I love this question, and You know, when I look back at 25 years in Canada, you know, what makes me smile is the number of friends and the friendships I've developed over the years uh, with individuals from 
all over the world, you know, different backgrounds, different faiths, uh, different belief systems, different political ideologies. And when I think about my life, uh, I just feel that it has just been enriched so much as a result of these friendships. And I would never have had this had I chosen to stay uh, and uh, continue you know, my adulthood in either India or in Malaysia, because that is where, like you said, I was designated, right? And so I would have stayed with people who had lots of similarities with me or my family, and it would have been things that I was very comfortable doing all the time. And over 25 years, I think I've been very fortunate um, to, to have had those friendships. And it has challenged me to think about a lot of things that I just took for granted. It has forced me to rethink my position on things. And it has given me a deeper appreciation for the struggles people of all cultures face, uh, irrespective of how long they have been in Canada or not. And through all of this, it has made me very aware of the unique reality and the struggles of indigenous peoples who after uh, having been the first peoples, still having to fight for their fundamental rights uh, and having to fight to belong in a country that's theirs. So yeah, I think the friendships, I think uh, make a huge difference and it definitely saves you from uh, feeling isolated uh, it saves you from getting lonely and feeling that nobody understands you. Uh, it also just helps you get through life, the ups and downs, uh, both in your personal and professional um, life, because you now have not just many people who care about you, but you also can access different uh, worldviews and different ways of problem solving to get through these situations. Shobana, is there anything uh, you'd like to add? This has been a wonderful <laughs> conversation with you, Anne. It's just been actually uh, not just fun, but also I think uh, sort of very uh, meaningful to reflect on 25 years in Canada, uh, all of which I've spent actually in British Columbia. And just very, very grateful um, to have had the opportunities I've had uh, grateful for the mentors uh, that I've had over the years, uh, the opportunity to work in public service for 20 years and now with SFU. Uh, but one of the things that I did not touch on, which I want to conclude with it, with it, is one of the most important things that I have done in the last 25 years is actually the pro bono work. Uh, volunteering for different organizations and volunteering my time to mentor youth over the last 25 years has really, really changed my experience uh, living, growing up, and working in this country. And if there's one thing I can say to anybody out there is from the moment you land in a foreign country as an immigrant, uh, start volunteering. It can change your life and it can change the lives of so many. 
Thank you so much, uh, Shobna. You have such a calm, soothing voice. Uh, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thank you for tuning into our conversation with Shobhana Jayamadavan. Learn more about Shobhana and her work at the links in the show notes. And subscribe and follow us at BTR underscore pod on Twitter to never miss an episode. See you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>